I, my Savior, am happy and blessed. I hope that's your story. I hope that's your song. We are going to continue our journey through the book of Colossians tonight. And so I'd invite you to turn there with me, Colossians chapter 3. I recognize I've been a little bit out of order as I've been preaching through this section. And that disorder continues a little bit, but I hope it's coming together. Colossians chapter 3, 5 through 11. Over the last several weeks, we have spent quite a bit of time trying to get our minds around the logic of what we're calling the resurrection life. Paul has been teaching us that the Christian life is not a minor lifestyle adjustment, but that it is a radically different, totally new life. In chapter 3, verse 1, you may see it on your page, is, but you'll see that Paul's explaining how the Christian life is built upon an invisible and theological reality that takes place at conversion. That if you've been raised up with Christ, then things are going to be different. If, you, if you've been raised up to a new life, then that life must actually be new, Right? The way that you think will be different. The things that you desire will be different. The pursuit of your life will be fundamentally reoriented. It's new. The words you use, your thoughts and your attitude towards sex and marriage and relationships and money, it all is different. You will find that you're even suspicious of the desires of your own heart knowing That covetousness, as the text tells us, is essentially idolatry. Worshiping the wrong God. And the point is this, that those who have died with Christ have also died to their old lifestyle of sin. And those who have been raised with Christ have been raised to a new lifestyle of obedience. But this is not magic, This transition is not magical or automatic. We must make major and massive and monumental efforts by the Spirit to rearrange our lives accordingly. And so Paul is instructing us first to adopt this certain kind of thinking about our new identity. He wants us to be certain and have clarity on what has taken place in our union with Christ. And then second, he wants us to adjust, to adjust our lives according to this new identity. The way we put it last week is, we are becoming who we are. We've already been declared and made new creatures in Christ, and now we are living into that identity. And part of that becoming who you are means that there are certain attitudes and certain behaviors that just don't fit into your new life anymore. One of my favorite movies of all time, 1991 classic, The Father of the Bride. I just need to see a show of hands to see who my friends are. Who has seen and appreciates The Father of the Bride? Mark has been watching it for weeks. He did, yes, yes. If you haven't, I'm sorry, you can tune back in in about three minutes. But in the movie, it's the, it's the movie with Steve Martin and Diane Keaton. And in the movie, Steve Martin plays George Banks or George Bonks. 
who is the father of the bride. He's an eccentric businessman. He owns this athletic shoe company, right? I think Sidekicks, so creative, right? Who, when he finds out that his daughter is getting married, does not want to give her away. I'm sympathetic. His resistance to the wedding leads to a variety of bizarre situations and, and more, more specifically bizarre behavior because Banks is a nostalgic man who does not like change and he spends most of his efforts resisting the insanity of the modern American wedding and living in the past, right? Memories of his daughter coming and playing basketball in the backyard and, and all that. Well, in one classic scene... George goes up into the attic and in an effort to save money, decides to dig out his old tuxedo, right? He digs out the old tuxedo, which of course has ruffles on it, right? As all good tuxedos should. He pulls it out of mothballs and he puts it on and it's a little bit snug, but he admires himself in the mirror and he sings and dances the karaoke version of Tom Jones's hit. What's new, pussycat? All right, so feeling really good about himself. I'm getting your attention. Feeling really good about himself, George Banks walks downstairs and proudly announces to his wife, the daughter, his daughter, and the wedding coordinator that he does not need a new tuxedo because his fits. Well, the father or the mother of the bride and the bride and Frank, the wedding coordinator, object immediately, not only because the tuxedo does not fit, which it doesn't, and not only because of the ruffles, but because they claim that it is blue, which is a fact that was lost on me still, right? And they plead with him saying, you know, George, everyone is getting new clothes for the wedding. And of course, his tuxedo rips when he's trying to open the door. But everyone is getting new clothes for the wedding. And their point, their argument is fitting for our passage tonight. George's tux did not fit him anymore. Therefore, it was not appropriate. He needed to take it off and he needed to put on a new tux. And the same is appropriate and true for us. That once you've been raised with Christ, there are sinful behaviors that just don't fit anymore. They just don't. They don't make sense, they aren't good, and they don't fit with our identity. They are no longer appropriate, and so they need to be retired and put away. Here in verses 5 through 11, Paul lists a sampling of sinful attitudes and behaviors that made sense in our old lives when we were living for the self and living for the moment as if there was no God and no law and no Christ and no gospel, but now... They just don't fit anymore. They need to be put off or taken off or killed, as the text has said. And new, better, fitting attitudes need to be put on in their place, which we'll see in more detail starting in verse 12. And so last week we began discussing this first list of sinful behaviors to put off there in verse 5. Behaviors that centered around mostly impurity and sexual immorality, which are ill-fitting and outdated and do not make any sense in the resurrection life. If adulterers are not going to be permitted into the kingdom of heaven, then how can we as God's people take place in adultery? It doesn't even make sense. 
And tonight we're going to continue to explore these, the, these sin lists and focus our attention tonight on verse 8 and verse 9. And we will see that there are certain attitudes of the heart and certain habits of our mouths that no longer make sense in the resurrection life. So let's, read, let's just read this whole uh, paragraph together. Follow along with me in verse 5. Put to death, therefore. That's our command. That's going to ring all the way through. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. But now, you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, Malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Jew and Greek, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. This is God's word. Let's pray and ask for his blessing. Oh God, you hear us call again and again, and we trust it honors you and delights you. And we pray that tonight that you would be pleased to help us by your spirit, give clarity and power and wisdom. But Lord, I pray specifically tonight for conviction. These are sins that can fly under our radar. Each one of us is so, we're so prone to pride. I certainly am. And so I pray that you would frustrate the work of the enemy who will try to blind us to ways that these sins show up in our lives. And would you give us clarity on how you're calling us to live and to repent. I pray that no one would leave here tonight discouraged or despairing. That no one would leave here feeling unloved by you because of their sin. But Lord, that each of us would run to Jesus and that we would leave tonight comforted and in awe that he has forgiven us. Please work to this end, or whatever end you see fit. We ask this in your name. Amen. Our main idea this evening from this text is that those who have been raised with Christ must take off their old clothes so that they can put on new, appropriate resurrection clothes. And specifically, we are to put to death any attitude or word that hurts others. Any attitude or word that hurts others. First, we'll notice that there are three sinful attitudes of the heart that are mentioned. And then we'll follow that by seeing how these attitudes overflow into wicked, perverse, foul speech. And then we'll focus a little bit uh, on the specific old practice of, old self-practice of lying. Okay? So three sinful attitudes of the heart, how those show up in our speech, and then lying. Let's look at the first one. Attitudes of the heart that we are called to put to death. Look there at verse 8. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice. As we said last week, the sins in this list tend to seem, they're, they're much more relational. They're interpersonal. They're sins that are committed against another person. And when you boil down to it, they're really all sins of hatred. Sins of hatred that take place in the heart. 
looking first at this word anger. Anger and wrath, both of which are mentioned here, are very closely related, but in the Greek they're different words. And there's not a tremendous amount of clarity on how they're used differently, but I, I think that there are some slight nuances. The Bible does use multiple words here. Paul does choose to say anger and wrath, so there, there must be some difference. But the word that's used here for anger seems to, or may, refer more to internal expressions of anger. In counseling, we often talk about this as stewing, right? There is anger that explodes and there's anger that stews, right? I've found just by observation that it seems that people tend to be more inclined to one or the other, right? And this is more of that internal. It's often described as an abiding, settled attitude of indignation that seeks revenge, right? It's the kind of anger that you have, and though it may be quiet and you may not be throwing vases across the room, right? Two of you got that. It's, it's still there. You think that you're in control, and you might even feel good about yourself because you're not screaming and yelling or hurting, but you are stewing. You're silently taking notes, storing that offense away to use at some other time. A wife may ask her husband, what's wrong? Are you okay? I feel like you're upset with me. And he says, grr, I'm, I'm fine, right? But silently, he's boiling inside. This is the person that's more likely to withdraw and stay out of a situation than to explode or deal with it. But that exploding seems to be more associated with our next word, wrath. This is explosive anger. It's a different word. It's associated with the boiling agitation that comes out. It's the passion of of anger. If anger is more of lava flowing underground, then wrath is what happens when that volcano erupts, right? When it comes out. It's an explosion. Outburst of anger. Fits of anger, perhaps. This is perhaps where we see the yelling and the name calling and the hitting and the throwing and the criticizing. We have evidence to to think that this word is used like this because the Greeks would use it in secular literature. They would, this is the word they would use when they would throw straw on a fire. What happens when you throw dry straw onto a fire? Well, it quickly lights up and then it dissipates, right? That's the word that's, that's used here. It's, it's, it's explosive, hot anger. Now, both of these attitudes, anger and wrath, are listed in our put-off category. And so we understand them both to be sinful. The silent stewing or the explosive interruption, both must be put off. Both must be crucified by the Christian. And what I've found in my life is I exhibit both qualities just at different times and in different circumstances. And that's likely the case with you as well. We're called to put off both of them. Even if we think that we're only sinning when we express our anger, that's not necessarily true. Because our unexpressed anger could be sinful as well. It's thinking angry thoughts, making angry judgments or unwise judgments about a person or a situation. Well, the next word that's in our text, malice, may bring all this together. It's a more general category of sinful thinking. It's a general term that simply refers to moral evil, but it's especially directed at other people. 
It's the vicious nature of the heart that, that schemes. Now, you hear me make this caution often. Perhaps this just tells you about me, but I tend to think that this is true, uh, generally speaking. When you come, there's certain sins that when you come to in the Bible, they either seem so bad and bizarre that you're like, oh, I don't do that, right? I'm not vicious in my thinking. But, but look for ways that you are, right? Ask the Spirit to reveal to you ways that you, that you struggle. The language, we can, we can become so callous to the language that, that the, the enemy works against the Spirit in this. So let's ask God to help us there. Because our, in our hearts, there are times, are there not, where we want harm to happen to others. Not necessarily for them to go to the hospital, but you want someone else to think poorly of them. Right? That's why we say bad things. Why else would you say an angry word to someone if you didn't want some bad effect to happen? Right? Where we may fantasize or even plot about something bad happening to another person. Just letting them get put in their place or let them be embarrassed. It's important to note that these attitudes are sinful and dangerous even before they become actions. Before they become visible actions. And so I think what links all of these together, anger, wrath, and malice, what links all these together is any attitude in our heart that allows for any thought of ill will towards someone else. Don't don't think major, I want this person to fall off a cliff. Think minor, right? Put that in the category as well. It could be just as simple as you wanting other people to think less of a person. So you gossip, lie, bend the truth, exaggerate, ignore the good and focus on the bad, leave something out. I'll I'll give you an example from my life how the Lord's convicted me. I was sharing a situation uh, with my wife and I highlighted a bad piece of information and specifically left out a good piece of information because it didn't fit my narrative, right? I wanted attention for what's going on. And then the Spirit convicted me, right? What I was doing was setting things up in a way that made it look the way I wanted to. That, that's what's going on. That was what was going on in my heart. So I need to repent of that. Perhaps one of the ways this shows up in our life the most is when we fail to assume the best of others. Do you ever struggle with that? We presume that we know their hearts and their intentions. We know so much about the situation that we know exactly what they were thinking, what they were doing, and why they did it. And guess what? It was terrible, right? We don't assume the best. We presume to perfectly know their motives, and we tend to prefer the worst-case scenario. It's much more interesting and gives us something to talk about. We love to interpret the actions of others, especially when we're frustrated or hurt, in a way that puts them down or shines a bad light on them, don't we? Malice is about wanting anything bad for someone else. But for the Christian, that attitude, none of these attitudes, none of these desires make any sense. For the one who has been crucified and then raised with Christ, anger, wrath, and malice are all inappropriate. Why? 
Because that's not how Christ treated us. That's exactly the opposite of how Christ has treated us. And he even had just cause to treat us poorly. He had just cause to pour out his wrath on us. And that should be one of the first things that the cross reminds you of. That should have been me. It's got to affect the way I treat people. It's got to affect the way I view other people and their struggles and in their difficulties and even when they sin against me. God had every right to pour out his wrath on me. He had every right to bring malice upon me, righteous malice, right? And he didn't. What kind of grace is this that has to affect the way I treat others even when they hurt me? This is grace. Christ loved us. Instead, he sacrificed for us and he suffered for us. Christ, in Christ, God showed the exact opposite of malice and anger and wrath towards us. He showed us grace. And now we too must put off anger, wrath, and malice and put on grace in our interactions with others. Especially when they mistreat us. This is no big deal when someone's treating you great, right? It doesn't even apply. There's nothing to be angry about. This happens, the, the opportunity to do this is when people hurt you and when they disappoint you or lie about you or don't take the time to understand you or criticize. And of course, all three of these attitudes of the heart, though they begin in the heart, they tend to explode and erupt out of our mouths. Anger, wrath, and malice tend to and usually end up spewing out of our mouths in filthy speech, such as, moving on in the text, such as slander, obscene or filthy talk, and then lying, all of which are mentioned to be on our block to kill, to put to death, verse 5. So let's turn now to this filthy speech. Filthy speech that we must put to death. Jesus was a master teacher, an observer of the human nature and human behavior, right? He taught with incredible clarity on the dynamics of the heart. He told us what goes on in a man's heart and what goes on in a man's mind, that that is actually who he is. And sooner or later, what is in a man's heart will transfer into the behavior of his life. And out of the mouth which he possesses. Do you remember what Jesus said in Luke chapter 6? A good person out of the good treasure in his heart produces good. And the evil person out of the evil treasure in his heart produces evil. For out of what church? The abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Sinful attitudes left unchecked will always turn into sinful behavior and sinful speech. It's different, can't deal with this tonight. But doesn't that mean that if we hear sinful words come out, that we need to be thinking about what's going on in the heart too? We tend to just pay attention to the words and try to apologize for the words and not deal with what's going on in our hearts. Our words are an indicator of what's already happening inside of us. Our words reveal who we really are. And that's often a very disappointing experience, at least for me. 
Our mouths spew out the contents of our heart, especially when the heat in your life is turned up. Especially when things are hard, or when you're so tired you can't think, or overwhelmed. Which means that we have to be attentive to our hearts, not only because of the damage they can do, but because of what they tell us about the condition of our soul. Have you ever heard someone say, hey, 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 I'm sorry, I didn't mean that. That was just my anger speaking. That's baloney. That, that doesn't, in the Bible, there is, anger is not a thing. It, we are not victims of our own anger. It is a sinful expression that is flowing out of our heart. Anger and its fruit come out of wickedness in our heart. When we say wicked things that we, we may not mean, and we regret them, we have to recognize they meant something, right? We said them for a reason, and it's because they come out of the depths of our heart. It doesn't mean they're true. It just means that we sinned, and we need to take responsibility. I think it's safe to say that when we have anger and wrath and malice in our heart, they usually overflow into the kind of speech that is listed next in this text. Slander, obscene talk, and lying. This word here for slander is the word blasphema, right? Femia, which of course is where we get the word in English for to blaspheme, right? And, and in the Bible, when this word is directed towards God, it's translated blasphemy. But when it's directed towards a person, we call it slander, right? So we can blaspheme God and we can blaspheme a person, right? Or we can slander God and we can slander a person. And then their two are really closely related, because the root of blasphemy, what's going on there, the reason that is bad is we are damaging God's reputation. We are thinking and saying untrue thoughts about who God is and what he's like. Is that not what slander is with a man? Right? It's when we disrespect, blasphemy is treating God with disrespect. And that's what it is with a human when we disrespect or say something to damage someone's reputation, even if it's true, it's often slanderous. This doesn't have to be some big, bad, graphic smear campaign, right? You don't have to have some obvious vendetta against someone to, to, to struggle with this. This is what happens whenever we talk about someone's mistake when they're not around and it's not for their good. We do this whenever we spread drama or especially rumors, things that are not true. This has been on my radar more because of this sermon. And I've noticed how often I need to catch myself, how often I need to stop talking. And I've developed a rule of thumb recently, which I hope will be helpful for you. And that's, that's something like this, that when I'm, when I'm talking about someone else, especially when they're not around, but even just as much when they are around, here's a good question that is helpful to ask. Will this comment make this person look better or worse? Will this boost this person's standing in the eyes of someone else? That's a good thing to say, right? Will this help or hurt this person's reputation? 
Now, obviously, there are places where we have to deal with problems and sins, and that's not really what we're talking about tonight. I think we can save that for a small, much, much smaller category, because that is not primarily what makes up the bulk of our conversation, is it not? We're often out with other agendas. And I've noticed that this really filters out a lot of conversations, right? Uh, at least for me, because I need, I need Jesus. To be honest, there's a very real sense where all slander against a human is also, and just as much, slander or blaspheme against God. Have you ever thought about that? That when you, especially when you falsely accuse or criticize, whenever you claim to know the motive of someone else's behavior, you realize you're slandering God? How could I say that? Well, the scriptures teach that when we speak critically of someone, we are speaking critically of someone who is made in the image of God. Think about how that works. No matter, even, no matter how much crazy stuff they do, I mean, can we not just all say people do crazy, terrible things? Yes, right? We know this. But these are still people who are made in the image of God. And no matter what they do or how much they hurt us or how wrong they are, we must always find ways to acknowledge this person is indeed made in God's image, created to reflect God. This was James's point when he said, you remember this? But uh, he's talking about the danger of the tongue, how no one can tame it. And he said, with the tongue, we bless our Lord and Father. And with it, we curse people who are what? Made in the image or the likeness of God. This is really interesting to think about. Think about what it means to be made in God's image, right? We've talked about this in the past in different times, but I understand that to mean that humans were made to draw attention to God. We We are to reflect, we're to live in such a way that spreads his glory over all the world so that when we live in a certain way, you're to look at us and then see the glory of God. As part of what it means to be made in the image of God. And so if we as Christians, we are especially about making God look good. Right? That, like, that's our thing. We're committed to the glory of Christ. He's attractive to us. So wouldn't we want to speak well of others? Do you see how that works? If God made you in his image to reflect his glory, then wouldn't I want to talk about you in a way that draws attention to God? Have you thought of that? We can actually magnify God's glory in how we talk about other people. Whenever we speak well of others, especially when we affirm godly character, when we praise Christ's likeness, we are actually commending God to other people. And guess what happens? God gets glorified. Even if that person isn't there, God gets glorified. So speak well of others. It is the opposite of slander. This is a sin that flies under the radar, doesn't it? As a pastor, I've noticed um, people tend to, not everyone, but people tend to be on their best behavior in front of me, right? Uh, People will curse and then they'll, oh, sorry, pastor. I'm like... Paul is a God. I mean, you know, uh, things like that. But I've noticed that people slander others in front of me all the time. They don't even notice it. Like they think that I like want to hear it because I'm like a pastor and interested in the bad things that people do or something. 
And, and I try not to hear it. Sometimes I don't even, I got to catch myself. Sometimes I shut it down. I try to shut it down. Sometimes I do, sometimes I don't, right? But this is a struggle. Like for our actual church. Not the church down the road. I'm sure they got problems. But we got our own problems, right? All this speaking, this sinful speaking, it, it fits into this final specific prohibition, prohibition here. The next word here is obscene talk, or you may have it translated abusive speech. Very similar to slander, right? But the word here highlights coarseness or the dirtiness of the speech, right? How unholy it is. And all of what we've talked about tonight fits into this category. And it gives us a chance to sum up what is it exactly, what kind of speech is prohibited for the Christian. Do I need to remind you, we're talking about hundreds of millions of words that come out of our mouths. All of which are holy or unholy. What is prohibited for the Christian? I think we could summarize it like this. Don't say words that hurt others. Don't say words that produce harm. Don't say words that do damage to other people, if it's their character or whether it's their person. Right? I think I've been studying the Ninth Commandment about how uh, we should not bear false testimony. One should not bear false testimony against his neighbor. And, and I think my take on that is that's ultimately what the Ninth Commandment is concerned with. That, that, it's, that we don't bear false witness against our neighbor because it's unloving. It's unloving to distort the facts in such a way that you harm your neighbor. It's about love. It's about doing good. Don't do things that harm. Instead, we're called, as we will see later in Colossians, and, and as I can't help but remind you from Ephesians chapter 4, instead we're called to speak words that are true and that edify. Do you remember Ephesians 4? Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Paul seems to be uh, coming to a point where he pauses and gives one example of speech that damages. And that's lying. I don't know why he singles out lying here. Perhaps he'd heard about lies that were going on. Probably not. Probably just gives, gives an example. He mentions this in Ephesians chapter 4 as well. I think verse 25. But the danger of falsehood. Let's, let's think about that for a moment. Untruthful speech. Putting off untruthful speech. Look at verse 9. Do not lie to one another. Seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. Okay, do not lie. Great job. Good night. You're dismissed, right? Is, is that how we think about, think about this? Right? Every Christian in the world, every, everybody knows that lying is bad, right? We, 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 we know that. But, but why? Like why? And, and what, what is going to motivate us when we're tempted to lie? What's going to help us honor God by speaking the truth even if it's hard or makes your life uncomfortable. I think we need to recognize, we need to begin by recognizing that truth is a significant issue in the kingdom of God. God is really into truth. He's really concerned with it and he prioritizes it, right? And if we've been, think about the logic, if we've been raised up with Christ, then our whole existence 
<laughs> from now through all eternity is one of complete, utter, total loyalty to that kingdom, then what are we going to be loyal to? We're also going to be people who are concerned with the truth, right? This is our kingdom. This is our Father's kingdom. And so we have to be a people who are committed to the truth. So think about this. See if you can follow this logic. God is, by his very nature, true. And he always promotes the truth. We, we'd agree? I could give you lots of verses here, but we've only got a few minutes. God is true and he always promotes the truth. He said, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth. He literally said, I am the truth. And remember, we have been raised with him, the truth. Right? Secondly, we were made in his image. Originally, right, we were originally made in his image, and now Colossians says that if you're in Christ, we are being renewed into his image. You see that there in verse 10, right? We're being renewed into his image. So what does that mean for us in truth? We are, since we're being renewed in the image of our creator, we should reflect his nature, right? God is committed to the truth. We were made in his image. That didn't go well on our end. So he's renewing us into his image. So now, how should we think about the truth? We are totally committed to it. Totally committed to it. Because we are to reflect his nature. Let's think about this on the other hand. Think about Satan. How does the Bible describe Satan? He's the father of lies. The father of lies. Satan knows this, and since he is anti-Christ, since he, the Antichrist, is anti-Christ, he is also anti-truth, which is why his description is the father of lies. We see him on the scene in Genesis 3 verse 1. What's he doing? He's a liar. That's what he does, right? So what happens when we lie? Who are we imitating? Ugh. Satan, contra to God, by his very nature spreads lies and promotes error. He loves gossip. Like, that's so his thing, right? He loves juicy, slightly true, slightly untrue words that put others down, especially when they don't know about it, especially when you're not convicted of it. He's so into that thing. The Bible regularly teaches it. We saw this in 1 John this morning, if you're in the CBR. Your integrity demonstrates whose nature you share. Your I'll say it again. Your integrity demonstrates whose nature you share. Your character reveals what kind of father you have. Are you a child of God? Or are you a child of Satan. We read this morning in 1 John 3, by this it is evident who the children who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Isn't that a chilling thought? Every time we bend the truth, we're acting like Satan's children. We used to be in fact, the Bible says that lying especially is characteristic of non-believers. The Bible describes 
that sinners not only lie and lie a lot, but that they really love it. Like they delight in it. That's the picture in the Proverbs again and again. And we used to be just like them, do we not? But not anymore. We've put away dishonesty. So we are now to put it to death as it crops up. We are children of the way and the truth. So we must be about truth-telling. Because every time we lie, we send mixed signals to the world. Children of God, children of Satan. How can you tell? I suppose people, mo- people lie for all sorts of reasons. To get ahead, to look good, to avoid consequences, to avoid feeling uncomfortable. How often do you find yourself lying or stretching the truth just so you don't feel uncomfortable? I've noticed a lot of my temptations are the lies for the comfort, which is crazy. To make ourselves look better, right? Before we close, let me just mention a couple examples of behavior that I think fall into the category of lying, but may fly under the radar. The first, obviously, is just straight out deceit. I was reading today, Proverbs 6, there's six things the Lord hates. Every time I read those passages, I'm like... Right, Six things the Lord hates and seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes and a lying tongue are the first two. He hates it. A second type of lying is breaking commitments. Scriptures say, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Don't make commitments you're not going to follow through. You don't need to swear by anything because if you say you're going to do something, you're going to do it. Right? Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Don't lie by breaking your commitments. Here's another one. This shows up in counseling a lot, right? Don't let your verbal communication and your nonverbal communication be different. For example, uh, you ever done this before? What's wrong? Nothing. Slam the door, right? <laughs> Liar. <laughs> it is so unhelpful. When our verbal, and it's, it's really confusing in relationships, when you're, when, when you're, what you're saying with your mouth does not match your body language and your facial expressions and your tone. I love you. Why don't you believe me? Right? It doesn't make sense. Speak truthfully by letting, uh, we communicate not only with our mouths, but with our whole persons. So work to, to match verbal and nonverbal communication. Right? A fourth type of dishonesty that flies under the radar is disguising the message. Right? Do you ever use innuendos? For example, man, Barbara sure keeps her house clean. Right? You should see how clean it is there. It's like she cleans it every day, right? <laughs> Getting, you know, you get in a lot of trouble there, but you're, you're, you're disguising the message. That's deceit, right? We need to strive for truth-telling. What about this one? Hey, honey, are you thirsty? In other words, can you bring me something to drink, right? Strive to, to speak the truth. What about exaggerating? I've noticed this a lot. Our daughter Addie came in the other day and she said, the bugs are eating me alive, right? It's just so dramatic. 
or we as Americans, we say this all the time, I'm starving, right? Okay, now I, I know that there's figures of speech, and I'm not, I'm not knocking on those, but uh, Leslie Nope, you may know her if you don't, if you do, great, right? She said, everything hurts and I'm dying, right? It's an exaggeration. A few of you cool kids in here. Exaggerations distort the truth. What do we do when we're saying, I'm starving? I'm saying, hello, pay attention to me. You need to be concerned about my mild discomfort because I haven't eaten in two and a half hours. And you're not paying enough attention, so I have to say that I'm starving, right? We're trying to draw attention to ourselves. So let's, let's, speak, let's speak the truth. God calls us to put off all forms of lying. So how are you doing with this? We prayed, we prayed that God would convict us by his spirit. And it's because we want to grow. So let me close just by reminding you of this precious promise from the scriptures. 1 Peter 2 says this. He, this Jesus, committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But he continued to entrust himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. So that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Place your hope not in your ability to tell the truth. Not in your track record. Not in your discipline. But in Christ in whom there is no deceit. And who bore your sins on the tree. Father, would you help us by your spirit to leave this place tonight and be people who are committed to the truth and to the good of others and to the well-being of your people. We ask this in your name. Amen. You're dismissed, church. Go in peace.